Hello folks, how are we? Hope everybody is well. Um, I should apologise quickly actually if I sound a little croaky or deeper in the voice this week. Um, you find me in Glasgow where I am hosting Transmit Music Festival which takes place in Glasgow Green. Um, three days of live music and I'm one day in and it's been absolutely glorious. Such a wonderful thing to see live music back. I was lucky enough to do All Points East a couple of weeks ago and I've got Isle of Wight next week. But um, being back up in Scotland and seeing the Scottish fans react to all these brilliant artists has been just fantastic. Also seeing all the crew, you know, all the roadies and all the crew getting all those sets ready for the bands to go on, all those trucks behind the stage. It's just been a wonderful thing to see everybody back doing what they love doing. So... Yes, it's been wonderful. But I have a new episode of the podcast this week and I'm very excited about this because I think this film is is very important. It's a beautiful film as well and you'll hear more about it in a second because my latest guest on Soundtracking is, well, she's many things. She's a producer and director who's worked extensively in theatre and film. But she's perhaps most famous for Mamma Mia and the Iron... In terms of film, anyway, she's most famous for Mamma Mia and the Iron Lady, uh, which saw Meryl Streep win an Oscar, of course, for Best Actress. Phyllida Lloyd's latest offering is Herself, written and starring Claire Dunn. Herself tells the story of Sandra, a struggling single mum who decides to build her own home when the housing authority refused to offer her one. In doing so, she rediscovers herself with the help of a beautiful, kind community, only for her abusive ex-husband to turn up. The film is scored by former guest on the show, Natalie Holt. And we'll begin with one of Natalie's unreleased cues, The Lass. And massive thanks to Natalie for sending us the score. If you'll be the last of I'm taking this you mean to be Tell me the first token that passed between you and me Oh don't you Let me in. 
Philida, thank you so much for sparing the time. I know you're en route to LA at the minute, which is very glamorous and very jealous about that at the minute as well. It's actually New York. Oh, there we go. New York. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to um, get the Tina Turner musical I worked on back together. Yes. Oh, man. Tina Turner, what a legend. I remember Abby telling me she'd been spending some time by Lake Geneva with Tina Turner for a secret project, which obviously was this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's- been an incredible adventure. I bet. Well, I'm glad that it's that people are going to get the chance to to see it after everything that's been going on. But I'm more well, I'm I'm equally excited that people are going to get to see your film herself, which I was lucky enough to see quite a while ago, actually. But something that's really stuck with me. Um, an incredible story, just a really important film as well. And not every film has has a message or has a a relevant story to tell about things that are happening in the world right now, but this is, is is one of those, I think. Yeah, I mean Claire, who who wrote it and and stars in it, I think she, you know, in the humblest way, she wants to think of it as a sort of lighthouse film that actually might, you know, I I don't know that a, a film can actually change the world, but I think it can sort of be there as something that reminds people who might be in this this situation that the central character finds herself in that there is poss- there are possibilities there is hope if you take that first step yeah i think it can can kind of encourage people to be heard really and to yeah. speak out really for themselves have the confidence yeah and the rest of us to kind of just look out for neighbors in a way that i think we've become well maybe more mindful of that over the last 18 months of how much we depend on each other Mm. I, I think it, it must have been about eight months ago that I did a, a Q&A with, with Claire and Ed Guiney and yourself talking about the film. And, and what was amazing to, to get a real understanding of how, I mean, this is incredible. This is the first film that Claire's written. Is it, it's not the first script she's written, is it? She's written stuff before. It's the first, no, it's the first film script she's written. Wow. I'm so glad she took, she, you convinced her to take the part as well because... There's just so much depth and honesty to our portrayal of this character, Sandra. Yeah, I mean, it seems, you, you look at it now and you think, oh God, I can't imagine it without her in it. And I think that she was just worrying that as she got had no work on screen, she was really struggling to get work on the screen and thought maybe to finance the film, you know, she would need to just play a tiny part and maybe a star, so-called, would need to, to be in the centre, but that's how, how I sort of suddenly went, hang on a second, even though I was a bit concerned about whether, you know, the film should have an Irish director, but then I thought, no, to hell with this. I really want her to be, I want, I want her to be seen by, you know, the world. You know, it's so not a kind of vanity project. She just feels so strongly that the story has to be told and that it has to be told in this way that is both, realistic and truthful and not without you know all the horror and trauma of anyone in this situation but at the same time the character central character she didn't want her to be a victim she wanted her to be in some way a kind of agent of her future and her change and that's the thing that I think one of the many brilliant things about the film is the tone of it in terms of you know the subject matter is obviously just devastating for, for various reasons and at various times throughout the film but there's this beautiful and brilliant uplifting kind of uh, emotion to the film as well and that's through 
friendships and connections and communication and that people have. And I love that part of the film as well. Was that easy to kind of to try and reflect visually? I mean, it was there very much in the screenplay, this kind of light and dark. It was as if, you know, she was in this very, in a way, threatening situation. But then she had these sort of opportunities to really rebuild and change. And with that came these sort of surges of optimism and hope. And then, you know, again, she's brought down to the ground again by her past. I think that, yeah, it was there in the map in the screenplay and... I just tried to follow that. And obviously we used music, which was originally she'd written a draft where Sandra had this iPod and her kind of her iPod and the tunes that kept her going and kept her kids going were the things that sort of lifted her, lifted her through these moments. And so I guess we followed that. Yeah, because I was going to ask because of, you know, with Claire writing the script of how much of the the, the kind of needle drops that were in the film were were written into the script, whether that be, you know, and they're really lovely moments that music is, is like you say, like is a kind of a release almost in a way with a bewitched, you know, c'est la vie. The, the only track that was actually um, written in at the beginning was the Sea of Chandelier at the mm-hmm. start. Um, and then I, I did start off with a much more kind of, in a way, generic soundtrack, a sort of through composed, which is what we tempt, which was quite haunting, quite Celtic, maybe what you'd have expected mm-hmm. for a film covering this subject. And then we just felt it was kind of, I don't know, it was sort of homogenizing the whole thing. So we just stripped it all out. And then Claire and I started talking about what would the kids and Sandra be listening to? What was she and Gary have listened to at festivals? Um, what was going to be there on the, on, in the environment on the building site? And so we mixed, you know, some of those big sort of banger tracks with, there's a lot of Irish indie bands, some of which are, you know, uh, Lyra, who we used at the very end.
yeah, it was a kind of fun project between the two of us. Yeah, it's great because you've got, like you say, you've got the, you know, Bewitched and Cranberry's got inhaler in there as well, which is great. Yeah. But then you have it all complemented by this beautiful score from Natalie Holt, who yeah. I was lucky enough to speak to maybe about a, a month ago. Um, and she's incredible. Yeah, she's amazing. What, what introduced you to, to Natalie's work? I met Natalie, really liked her, liked some of the stuff she'd done. And I think she had a, she had a really tricky job of trying to sort of navigate around, you know, the, the, the tracks that were there, but to take us into, you know, some of the really heightened, the, the moments of trauma without sort of actually deluging the film with big melodramatic score. So she did a, a fantastic, really subtle job of it, I think. And the whole, the sound of the the PTSD, which was something um, that she helped with very much, which was, you know, uh, was quite a delicate um, thread through it. At what point did she come on? Had you had you shot had you shot the film and or definitely yes yeah. yes. And at first I was quite kind of as I say we started off with temp tracks and and it wasn't really until we decided we were going to use a lot of source material that I went to her and asked her because I think you do need a special person who who kind of in a way allows those tracks to be in the inevitably they're going to be in the foreground. Um, and maybe not every film composer wants to take on that project, but yeah, she, she did a great job.
I'm so excited that people get the chance to see this in cinemas as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, after seeing it, you know, we saw it for the first time at Sundance about 18 months ago in like the biggest movie theatre with a huge audience of Americans who, you know, Americans, when they, when they feel something, they make a sound. And so there was a lot yeah. of kind of gasps of horror and laughter and tears and you could hear people all the way through it. So when, you know, lockdown happened and it went sort of, it went on ice, we, we didn't know, you know, when it would, it would surface, but as a picture house have been amazing sticking by us through this. So it's really nice to see it's going to be watched in, in groups. Yes. I, it's that thing. There is something quite, um, I've been lucky enough just to see a few films in the States, you know, at the cinema. I've not been out there enough to kind of be a regular cinema goer in the States, but I saw Parasite in, in L.A., and that was an amazing experience in terms of the kind of physical, audible kind of um, experience that it was of just everyone's work. They never didn't hold back in their response to things and letting everybody know how they felt. And I loved that. Yeah, it's, it is incredible how, you know, you realise what we're like over here, um, <laughs> how we just repress everything and then get sick. You know, it's, it's funny. They let, really let it let it all out. Yeah. Um, I also just, um, I don't think she gets talked about enough, but Harriet Walter, who I just adore, I think she's just an amazing person to watch on screen and whatever it is that she does. And and um, I thought she was fantastic in this film as well. Yeah, and Harriet and Claire and I, had, had come, we were all working together in the theatre when mm. Claire started writing this. So Claire and I had been kind of, really supporting Harriet through a lot of these sort of, she was doing these blockbuster Shakespearean roles all in one day, playing three huge male roles. And so we were used to very much being the support for her. And so it was really nice for Harriet and I to be, you know, we were the kind of support team for Claire in mm. this. And there was a lot of friendship and trust between us. So the ex it was lovely to be able to just segue from one medium to the other. And that's why I sort of felt, you know, really happy to be in this low budget film world, really, in order to be able to do that with with mates like this. Yeah, I feel like it's slightly um, is perfect timing as well that I get the chance to chat to you, considering that ABBA have just announced their <laughs> first first new music in 140 years or whatever it is. Yeah, this is incredible. <laughs> you know, they are those boys. They just um, they never stop creating. Mm. I mean, they. I mean, I remember when I was working doing the soundtrack of Mamma Mia in New York with Benny and uh, people were asking, you know, will, will the band ever reform? And it, I mean, he was just completely like, that is never going to happen. You know, <laughs> get over yourselves. And so, yes, of course, they're not going on the road really together. But the very fact they've been in the studio it, it, and they've recorded the whole album, I think is pretty amazing. I think they'll be Glastonbury within five years. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Tell you what, though, Tina Turner's the one that I want to see at Glastonbury. Every time oh someone says to me, who do you want to see play? Every time I say it's Tina Turner. My mum does the most amazing Tina Turner impression that she's done since I was little. And uh, she's a goddess. She's just one of my absolute idols and favourites of all time. She is absolutely incredible and she's the nicest person you ever want to meet. She's so ridiculously humble about mm. what she's achieved and she's just such a special spirit. She's, yeah, phenomenal. One of the special ones. 
when you when you think about the just quickly going back to if you don't mind just the ABBA thing in terms of working on the you know the play to then working on the film how much of that experience of of seeing an an, an audience and a theater react to the story and that music inform what you went on to do with the film yeah i mean it was very very crucial and in a way it was my first you know big big movie and i think i'd have been a lot more fragile in a way on it had i not seen it play all over the world in all different languages and seen exactly what you know universally people engaged within the story so occasionally you know when the studio would come and say you know have you thought about an extra scene where she does this that or the other and you kind of with real confidence were able to say I have thought about it but I'm not going to do that because actually it will just murder you know the next part of it so I did have a very we all did a very strong sense of how it worked as the kind of an engine and how you know brilliantly conceived Catherine's script was in terms of this sort of story that every culture identified with and then there were a few places where you know I remember people said, you know, oh, Dancing Queen, you know, it works really well in the bedroom. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I was thinking, no, 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 guys, you know, we're, we're, we're on a Greek island here. We can't just shoot the whole thing in a blooming bedroom. We've got to kind of, I've got to chase Meryl around the island with my handicam, which is a lot of what a lot of people said the film looked like. It was so kind of clunky, but that's what it felt like. <laughs> I am, um, I had a, you probably won't remember this, but it will always be referred to as apple pie night for me. Oh, my which was God. Don't, don't, don't. When I was, I mean, I'm still quite bemused by how I got invited to this magical evening at your house and being sat next to Abby Morgan, who I then went on to just be one of my favorite people and, and keep in touch with on regular, you know, as regular as she possibly can with how busy she is and how full her life is. But the, the vision of Meryl Streep being sat around a dinner table with, what was there, 16 people or something there? It was ridiculous. And then she made apple pie. Yeah, she spent the whole day making the apple pie. And she said she was ransacking my kitchen going, you know, where are the pie dishes? And I was like, well, is there, is there, that's a dish for, you know, a pie. She was like, no, no, no. <laughs> so she, we rushed off with her driver and went, around all the Robert Dias's and all these kind of <laughs> hardware stores looking for these proper apple pie dishes. And I have never seen so many apples. I didn't really know what an American apple pie was, but <laughs> going into this pie. Um, but it was one of those incredible nights where, and there were some amazing people there. And then some of them afterwards, even having had apple pie, absolutely put the knife into us about the movies and I was like oh god even you know even with apple pie there's no there's no getting around these people it was quite funny actually I remember nearly spitting my wine across the table as I turned glanced to my right and Meryl was kind of removing on her knees removing apple pie from your oven I was like is this actually <laughs> happening to me in my life this is mental <laughs> the deer hunter was one of the first grown-up films I ever watched and you're taking apple pie out of the <laughs> oven there's no job too menial for her. She's known on, on the, our film set, she was known as in all departments because you turn around and she'd be sort of helping the prop guy carry a cast iron bath from one part of the set to the other. Was that an easy film to, with music-wise, working with Thomas Newman on that, you know, in terms of getting the, the music right for, for that performance? Um, I'll let you into a secret, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind my sharing this, that actually... 
I started off working with Clint Mansell on it, who I uh, admired hugely. I'm still a big fan of and We got on really, really well. But we gradually realised as the work was kind of unfolding, we were both kind of, it was like we were both writing and experiencing the score from our own point of view and the miners. It was like we were creating this throbbing kind of, really gritty grungy metal kind of score and thinking oh my god and I suddenly had to kind of slap myself and go look you're trying to make a film which actually you know is from her point of view and yeah. she's not hearing you know this kind of really heavy duty sort of stuff she's hearing this sort of heroic grandeur of her sort of you know her Elgar years and so that and and that's when Clint just said to me look I think you know I'm just actually the wrong person to do this because I am thinking of it from that point of view and graciously said you need to find someone else so that's where Tom came on and took on all that sort of almost pastiche kind of Britain you know rural Britannia kind of world of it and also did the you know beautiful stuff that he does for Mm -hmm. all the sort of dementia scenes with Olivia Coleman, which were really delicate and, and great. Yeah, and also the early years with Alexandra Roach as well, you know, in terms of that sort of, yeah, that kind of, um, I don't know, that that kind of light kind of, you know, the world's her oyster kind of thing almost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, he's, he's, he's an incredibly clever guy.
The music's always been, you know, your theatre career, obviously, hugely successful theatre career through, you know, working in theatre and opera as well. So your music's kind of been a big, a big part of your career through, throughout that. And I'm, I, I don't really know enough about music and the theatre and how it works with, with productions because sometimes it's it's warranted, sometimes it's not. I mean, you worked on, you did that, you did the the Handmaid's Tale opera, for for example, um, you know, which is kind of very current right now with the, the incredible TV series that's just um, that's just finished. And music is used so brilliantly in that. I don't know if you've been watching it at all, but yeah, I think it's, it's so amazing. clever the way they use, yeah. you know, music to to kind of highlight a point at the end credits and all that kind of stuff and throughout as well. It's so so clever. But with regards to that, you know, that story and, and an opera of that and, and working on something like that, how I'm so interested in, in how that all works and comes together. The difficult thing about an opera is it takes years to actually put it together. And it is so, so expensive to, to sort of make new opera. And I think that's one of the real problems about the medium and how, why, you know, it, opera struggles to have a young audience because there's just not enough new stuff that, that is able to be generated. I didn't come onto that piece in the kind of early days of the composition of it, but it was an amazing, Paul Ruder's Danish composer wrote it and it was an amazing, it conjured this incredible world where, where the, the, the sort of world of the present almost felt medieval as if you know women had been sort of bounced back a bit like they yeah in Afghanistan but mm. what they're they're re-entering there and then he made the present you know the past as it were was was more like our present and so it was really clever the way the orchestra were used just you instantly knew where you were in in the space <laughs> And, and, you know, there is something very operatic about that story. Margaret Atwood also is a big opera fan. And so, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic piece. But I've, on the whole, um, worked on operas by deceased composers just because, you know, there's so few modern operas really available. Mm. It's, it's a quite an unwieldy... I mean, even, you know, a stage musical takes years to get off the ground. But an opera's, yeah, that is another really big thing. It's another beast. Yeah, it is. And I guess when it comes to theatre, it depends on the project, whether there's, there's a need for music to be part of it or not. Yeah, I mean, this, um, this last thing I was doing with Claire and Harriet, which we worked on over 
over five or six years, these these Shakespeare plays were a really interesting one where we we started with a, a colleague of mine, Gary Yershon, who's a brilliant theatre composer. Um, and we had a lot of actor musicians in the company, which was great. And then we, had, we, we did three plays over, over five years. And in the second play, we decided to, we found out one of our company was a DJ, um, Karen Dunbar. Well, you probably know Karen Dunbar because she's, she's a Scottish, she's a bit of a national treasure in Scotland. And she was a professional DJ. And so we decided we would... Oh, she's in Tune the Fat. She's amazing. Yeah, she's Oh, fantastic. she's fantastic. Yeah, I know, Karen. If you ever need somebody to mix tracks for a party, she's unbelievable. <laughs> and so she basically kind of live mixed vinyl in the show, in the Shakespeare show. And the, 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 the setup was, was on stage. And that was a really cool, different kind of approach to everything. So it was, there was a real jump between, you know, the Shakespeare and this stuff. And then in the final show, again, we had, we had mixtures of composition and tracks and I don't know. It's just wonderful having it there in the room and making the music while you're making the play and working with lots of, you know, we had Sheila Atom. I don't know whether you know who was in Girl from the North Country yeah. in, in our company. And we sang, you know, Las Vegas and um, uh, Joan Armour Trading. And, Brilliant. And Sheila was, you know, that was, uh, Sharon Rooney was also in the company at one point who also sang a lot of those numbers and that was pretty cool that's so good it is so uh, the the opera thing's really interesting I don't know why it's not something that the BBC have their young musician of the year it's kind of let's let's encourage you know young people to to create to create opera and, and give them that support that we need because there's so many great stories that could be told in that beautiful creative way yeah I mean there is something about opera I mean I've not done as much opera I, I was you know struggling to keep theatre and film going as a double thing but somehow yeah. adding keeping opera in the mix as well has been really hard and I think I have struggled quite a bit with the age of the audience you know I really feel I'm want to try and speak to the next generation and uh, and that's easier to do in, yeah. in film and theatre but there is something about opera when it comes together in a great production that literally, you know, reaches parts that other art forms do struggle to get to. It just does because somehow the combination of there's something, it's like watching Olympic athletes do something like pole vaulting where you think, how can this person on stage be singing and clearly singing over an 80-piece orchestra, you know, and soaring over it with them supporting. And, and if you get the kind of, you know, what you're putting on stage right, the correct, and you can really get relationships between the performers um, so that it feels like they're literally sort of composing the thing as they go along, it can really blow your pants off. Mm. You know, it's so epic in terms of the numbers of people involved, the chorus, the orchestra, the huge, yeah, it, it's, it's a big unwieldy beast. But I have had some of my best times working in it and I love working with singers. Uh, it's been 
really great. Oh, amazing. Listen, um, I think your flight's about to get cold. So <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, I wish you all the best with with uh, with getting Tina back on the stage as well. Yeah, it's lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me on. You too. And I look forward to speaking to you for the next project as well, Flutter. Thank you so much and take care. Safe flight. Thanks, Edith. Bye. Bye-bye. From the score to herself, that storm won by Natalie Holt, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Phyllida Lloyd. My huge thanks to Phyllida for taking the time to talk to us, particularly as she sat in an airport waiting to fly to the States. You can watch herself. It is out in cinemas now, and I highly encourage you to get a group of friends together and go and watch it. It is thoroughly empowering and emotional and beautiful and brilliant. Head to edithbowman.com if you want to hear my chat with Natalie and indeed Abby Morgan, who also got a mention in the conversation. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. Please do subscribe to our YouTube channel too for Soundtracking Extra. And if you like what you hear, please do spread the word because we highly, highly appreciate you spreading the word about our wee podcast. Please join me next week for another chat about film and music. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.